Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about Cthulhu. We're talking about everything that just goes into that theme, that whole idea of Cthulhu. There's so many Cthulhu games right now coming out, and I wanted to talk to a guy who's got a really cool one that comes out this summer, Mr. Chris Kirkman from over at Dice Hate Me Games. Chris, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, so Chris, I'm excited to talk about your your game coming out, Fate of the Elder Gods. Uh, that's just a really cool idea. I want to talk about that in just a minute. But just in case people don't know who you are, have never heard of you, never heard of Dice Hate Me, kind of give people a a background, uh, your bio on how you got into gaming and what you're doing now. Sure. Well, I've been in gaming all my life pretty much. I grew up playing games with my mom. And as as a teenager, where a lot of designers and and enthusiasts uh, grew up kind of tweaking games. We played hardcore games, but also games like HeroQuest and things like that. So I would take the rule set and kind of uh, amp them up times three and my friends would uh kind of play through those and, and enjoy them and i did those so i kind of carried that through um as far as uh, doing both uh, game design but also game production i owned a or co-owned a multimedia production company in 19 in the late 1990s and we would build uh games for the digital space for uh, shockwave and, and and multiplayer platform projects and i was the key designer for that i would come up with the concepts and design them but design them in an analog space so then we transfer them into a digital space and well after the internet bust happened we kind of shelved that and turned it into a sandbox so i kind of just held on to that for a while <clears throat> but after um i used to work in newspapers and i was in newspapers for years and uh, worked all up and down the east coast and and after i i realized i needed to probably transition into a, the manix career i started um a board game evangelism blog dice hate me so uh, i had missed kind of writing about things and and also covering the b you know interviews and and covering news and things so i started dicehateme.com and uh, also came across kickstarter at that time and started uh the early early kickstarter beat that was way back in the the wild west years that was 2010 (laughs) so like uh, seven, so it's hard to believe seven years ago now, but interviewed David McKenzie, of course, who launched Alien Frontiers, which is one of the very first ones that proved that Kickstarter was viable for doing board games. And yep. that following summer, 2011, I formed Dice Hate Me Games and uh, decided to uh, start putting out some some designs of uh, maybe possibly some designs of my own in the future, but mostly it was um, designs that I thought that were cool that I'd found that, that I really wanted to get into the marketplace. And so that's led me to this place now. I have uh, merged with Greater Than Games, and the creators of Sentinels in the Multiverse, and now we have uh, one uh, big company that we that I, I'm the chief game development director for. I scout for games, also develop games, and uh, we put them out under the Dice Me Games umbrella, Fabled Nexus, and Sentinel Comics. Yeah, so you got a lot of stuff going on. You do a lot of different things as far as acquisition, yeah. as designing. You know, you're on, in on the publishing aspect, so you, you have a lot of really cool insight on different things. And so just kind of talking about your background for a minute. So you got into this really out of a love for games, just started with a blog, and then that led to more. And I'm finding that that's so often the case with so many people I interview. It just started off with, hey, I really love this thing. I want to be part of it in some way. And so so many people, they volunteered at cons or they just started helping out in the warehouse with somebody or whatever, blogs, and then that has turned into something more. Now, when you started Dice Hate Me Games, like the actual company were you was that your side gig like were you still working a full-time job regularly 
Yeah, I was. I used to, uh, when I got out of newspapers, I started working for a medical animation uh, company. We did uh, patient education animations and things like that. And um, we used, basically, it was a bunch of ex-journalists that I'd all worked for in the past. And so I I just started uh, transitioning and, and decided to do the, the game design thing. And I knew that, I, you know, board games are a small margin business. So yeah. you have to really get established before you can do it. But I found that after the second release, Viva Java did... I think we did almost, uh, if I recall correctly, over $80,000 on Kickstarter. It was, it seemed like, especially because it was taking a lot, up a lot more of my time, that could justify probably subsidizing. Also, uh, just, just so you know, it's something else that I do. I, I uh, am a, an adjunct professor at UNC Chapel Hill. So um, I do that. I teach two, two, around two classes a semester on introduction to graphic design at the journalism school. So I'm able. I was able to at that point pretty much just quit my full time job uh, and start on die saving. That was in 2012, and I continue to today still teaching, doing adjunct teaching on the side as well as all this stuff that I do. Yeah, medical animation sounds like it needs to be a board game. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you what, man. It's uh, it was an interesting gig. I told my mom. My mom always wanted me to be a doctor, and I said. There's no way I can't stand. It. I can't take all that gore, and I'll tell you, with all the research and stuff we had to do for all the procedures and the the um, conditions and things, some things you can't unsee. And, <laughs> right, it's like middle school yeah. health class all over again, huh? Oh, it's it's. We had to watch hardcore like surgeries happen. I mean, we had to go through basically the process of training to be a doctor so we could understand it well enough to tell people about it. So yeah. I still think I could probably remove appendixes in my garage if I wanted to. <laughs> Well, I'll let you know if I ever, you know, it depends on how this insurance <laughs> thing goes with our government yeah. right now. Well, uh, you might have some business here soon. Um, but now, let's, let me ask you this. Now, I'm finding a lot of people that had, you know, full-time gigs doing totally different things. When they got into board game design or publishing, a lot of that stuff carried over. Now, medical animation seems kind of way out there, but has that helped you, like, write rule books or do things as far as teaching games? Yeah, um, working both in medical animation, but also, uh, especially being trained as a journalist, you know, I translating that to a board game space is usually a pretty good thing because you're able to, uh, process and, and distill information very well, um, get things down to the bare essence, both for editing, but also just design wise and graphic design wise. What I've found is that it actually helps in the design space, obviously. And I was able to do the graphic design for our company, uh, when we first started, and I still do graphic design work, but it's spread amongst uh, also art director Jen Clausen does a lot of that, and Daryl Lauder does a lot for us. And anyway, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting and found is that through doing usability testing uh, at, at UNC, the actual usability testing for magazines, periodicals, and the web doesn't 100% translate to the board game space. Uh, when we first started, I started organizing things in a very different way that was actually optimized for that usability test. And because of the way board games and board game rule books have been done for so long, it wasn't 100% translating over to people because they're so used to seeing things in a certain way. So it's been interesting to take that information and learn from it and sort of adapt that usability into uh, a new space. So... Yeah, it's all a learning process still, even though, you know, I've got tons of, of, of knowledge and information about doing things journalistically and graphically in the board game space, you still have to take into account how previous games have, have come out and how the board game mentality and user experience is slightly different. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that's something people need to be aware of or realize is you might come up with a better way to do things 
but it might not matter. I was watching right. a, uh, a video a while back, and there was this engineer, and he worked for like Colgate or one of the toothpaste companies, and he said that they had done all this work and all these things, and they'd figured out a better way to open the tube, right? And it just popped off the way, and it was a really interesting design, cool design. And he said, this is a better way to do things. It uses less calories. You can do it with one hand. Like everything about it was better. And then they took it into the testing phase and all people did was try to unscrew it. And because it wasn't threaded, it never came off. And so they would look at him and go, Hey, this, this is broken. You can't take it off. And it, he was losing his mind in frustrations. Like just pull it, just pop it with your thumb. <laughs> all you gotta do is pop it with your thumb, you know? And so he's like, we had to go back and just do the, the twist cap because that's all people knew how to use. And so I think that's something we need to always keep in mind as, as designers is, yeah, you're coming into this with a lot of prior knowledge that people have as far as how games work, how rule books work. And so use that to your advantage as opposed to just trying to go completely against the grain because people might not accept it or understand it. Yeah. And you, and again, it's a learning process and it's like, if you want to, and obviously things have improved over time. And so it's small, small improvements here and there, small moves. Um, people start to get used to more and more things and processing information and new people who come into the hobby are, are responsive to that. But there's a lot of people who play a lot of games. And so you've got to try to, and myself, my, my, Overall job is to not only you know uh, creatively develop and, and do design and things like that, but I'm, I also love games, and so playing a lot of games helps me in that space because I'm able to see how a lot of other people and content creators and developers and things do things, and also the way design space works. Um, I always tell my students in the graphic design class that a large part of being a good graphic designer is observation, and that's the same thing in this space as well. No, that's a great point. If you're not playing other people's games, you're falling behind because you're going to oh, end yeah. up behind the trends, behind what's working, behind the new ideas. And so never feel like you're too good or you don't have enough time. That's another thing. People say, well, I don't have enough time to play games and make games. Well, you, you need to make time to you play make time. games. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. If you want to be a great author, you need to read great books. And that's just kind of the way it is in, in any artistic realm. 100% agree. Well, cool, man. Well, let's get into Fate of the Elder Gods who kind of Tell people about the game. It's not out yet. You know, only only a handful of people have played it so far. So just kind of tell me the synopsis of the game, and then we'll talk about maybe the process of it. Sure. Uh, Fate of the Elder Gods. You are all. Um, it plays from one to four players. We have a solo mode in it as well, which is pretty cool. Uh, you're one of four cults that are tr that are serving an elder god, an ancient one, and you're trying to summon that ancient god to hasten doom for all humanity and basically win the game. Now you're <laughs> it's all going to die. Happy game. That's a super happy game. Well, it's you know it's, it's Lovecraft. It's got to be nihilistic, <laughs> no doubt. Um, yeah, and it's like you win the game, but you know all humanity is going to die, so it's kind of a you know a pyrrhic victory, but. Uh, it's it's from the cultist perspective, and so there are some. It, it can the game can be slightly evil, but people tend to get into that. You know, this <laughs> right. past past weekend I played it with a lot of people at PAX, and they were all like, they really get into a little bit of the trash talking, a little bit of the the uh, the. It doesn't have a lot of take that in it, but it does. It it encourages that slightly mischievous um, yeah. feeling. But basically, what you're trying to do is is raise your summoning track through uh, influencing. Uh, six different locations in and around Arkham or the other worlds, which represent like Rilia and Carcosa and things like that. Um, you then each individual location has an ability, but also has a control ability. So there's a little bit of control uh, aspect in this area control aspect uh, by placing your cultists in this area. Also, the, there's a movement mechanic in it, which is pretty cool. It's uh, there are six different locations, but there are spell cards that you manage in your hand, and each turn, wherever the fate piece is on the fate clock, which is what we call the board. 
have to put your spell face down and the symbol that's on the face down spell that matches one of the other symbols on, on the board and you move the fate piece to that location. And as those symbols build up in these astral columns, that's how you can uh, summon or ready spells in your hand. So not only is it a movement mechanic, it also seeds places so that you can then uh, ready those spells to use them to help you to gain the upper hand on your uh, against the other cults as you move throughout the game. The other thing that's kind of neat about it is uh, the second there's a secondary win condition. So investigators, obviously, you can't have a, a Lovecraftian Cthulhu game without the pesky investigators. Right. We call them pesky because obviously they're the quote unquote bad guys in this game, but (laughs) the good guys. So they, they will come out and investigate and snoop about things that you're doing around the different locations. So when you place a cultist in a location, an investigator will join, will join them there. And then if you ever move to a location that has three or more investigators there, you'll take them and they'll actually come to your lodge. And eventually if you have five or more, they will raid your lodge. There's also a couple of, of things that can happen that will cause a raid and you roll a dice, and each Elder Sign that you roll, you gain Elder Signs on your track. And if your track ever fills up completely with Elder Signs, then your Elder God is sealed off for all all time, and uh, you lose. Hmm. And at that point, whoever has the least Elder Signs in the game wins. So a couple different win conditions and uh, different strategies for getting there. Yeah, okay. So and you worked with Richard Launius on this game, yep. right? Which is super cool. He was uh, one of the guests on the guests on the show early on. We talked a little bit about Cthulhu, but he was just a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And it was just so cool to listen to him just talk about game design and all the things he's learned. How in the world did you get to work with him on this game? <laughs> like, how did that work out? Well, Richard is just, I mean, I've said this, but he is the best guy in the business. He is, uh, it, it's funny because when I first started Dice Hate Me, I, I'd been going to Origins for a little while, but I, I started Dice Hate Me shortly before, well, I went to Origins in 2011. So I'd been doing the blog for about a year at that point. And I had always wanted to meet Richard. Richard's one of my sort of design heroes. I've played Arkham Horror probably more than any other game in my collection. Yeah. And so uh, when I went to Origins, I had, a chance to meet Steve Avery, who was another designer who's also a friend of Richard's. And somehow or another, I got wrangled into playing Defenders of the Realm and Richard taught it. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of a bucket list item for me. And of course, Richard, for anybody out there who gets a chance to play a game with Richard, you've got to do it because you'll never find somebody more spirited and, and fun to play a game with. And he just he loves playing his games too. And so we just got, you know, super into it. And then shortly after that, I asked him to be on our podcast, which is state of games. And he said, sure. And so we had a great time talking to that. So it's just over time, you know, I, we became, you know, pretty good friends and, 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 uh, colleagues. And so we'd meet at, at conventions and things. And so finally we were at, um, Unpub, which is the unpublished games convention. I think that was two years ago, Unpub five. And, uh, Daryl, louder who was the other one of the other co- co-designers with me and richard he and richard were having a late night conversation at umpub i was there as well and contributing to it but they had this idea for a game and so they started kind of sketching it out while they were just sitting there uh late night in, in the hotel room and eventually richard and daryl started tinkering with it and and i of course was super interested and since i could sign things you know for for greater than games and dice hate me games i was right. like we need to do this game and <laughs> So I know I wanted to be super involved with it as well. So uh, after they had gotten the basics of the game down and um, had ironed out a couple of little kinks, one of the first big play tests I did uh, was last year uh, before PAX East, and we were able to uh, then begin. I, I took off for spring break and did an entire week with Daryl 
just com- given not overhauling, but adding a whole lot of uh, depth and in, in, in character creation to it. And of course, we're talking to Richard on the phone. Then we eventually went to Richard's house and did the last of the the development cycle for it. So that's kind of the the process and the story of starting to work on this game. Now, when when I first started out, like my bucket list started with, well, I want to play a game with Richard Launius. Yeah. And then after that, it became, you know what? Sure, it would be nice to publish a game from Richard Launius. <laughs> then it became. Maybe I could design a game with Richard Lonnie. <laughs> so now I've done all those things, and I have my name on the box too. And yeah. I'm like, I'm I'm done. I'll You're retire. Right. Just go down to <laughs> Tahiti and drink some mai tais or something. I don't know. <laughs> You've seen it all at this point. I've as seen far it as that all. Goes. I mean, that guy. He's he's on the Mount Rushmore of game design. If we're being honest, I mean, he's just he's done he so really much is. for the industry, and that's so cool that you got to work with him. Uh, just. Real quick, what what all did you learn from him? What did you learn from him and his process and things you're going to be able to take with you down down your design journey? Well, he I found out that we have a very similar kind of design aesthetic in that we we love thematic games. I mean, I'm I'm a big Euro player as well, but I like Euros that also are able to incorporate their theme pretty well. And um, he loves theme. He loves story. He loves uh, those little moments where there's some chance in the game, and you know you have those standing dice rolls sometimes, and right. so that's something I've learned is that we have a similar aesthetic, and the way that he works is generally working a product or project or problem from the theme portion backwards, uh, which I find very helpful because, like in Fate of the Elder Gods, you know we they're we're very familiar with the Cthulhu mythos, and and uh, it was great, of course, to have that that wealth of of wisdom and experience that, that Richard has had because I mean. He designed Arkham Horror back in 1987, right. and it was published way back when. And um, so he's been doing this for you know for 30 years and been involved in this for you know for a long time. Right. So that was one of the greatest experiences is being able to tap his his brain as far as like you know okay well we'd like to have you know X in the game and he would go well they usually do this that and the other and you know I I knew a lot of those things too but the way he would think about it then I would be able to riff off of it and then you know Daryl would be the sounding board for doing things uh, trying to incorporate things mechanically and it was just a great process to be able to work on a game that was super thematic but also had uh, interestingly enough probably the most uh, Euro-like mechanics that that uh, he's ever experienced so he learned a lot from this process too he doesn't normally yeah design uh, super sort of euro type games and not to say that Fate of the Elder Gods is a euro it's, it's more of a, a hybrid but it's been it's a really thematic game with cool mechanics no that's awesome so let's talk about research because that's one thing when you're making a thematic game the more you know about the content the no- more you know about that era of history or whatever it is that you're designing for you know the more you can kind of inject that theme so what all did you do to research Cthulhu or the stories because I feel like there's a lot of games that come out that are Cthulhu themed but they kind of maybe just went through Arkham Horror and said oh yeah I like that oh I like that let's use that guy <laughs> and then they didn't actually do any research or read any of the stories so what all did you do well it's interesting because like I've been I mean I've, I've been reading Lovecraft since like, seventh grade in middle school so you know it's and I played the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game back in the day and of course you know Richard was very involved in in all of that as well so it was um, kind of interesting in that I was already uh, embroiled in kind of a Lovecraft nerd going into this. Right. So um, by playing Arkham Horror, and I'll say some of the people who do want to come out with with Lovecraftian type of games, they've played Arkham Horror, and it probably is okay to say like, "Oh, that look, that's cool. Let's have that in our game." Mm-hmm. It does create. They have created over the years uh, sort of a 
a mishmash of the mythos that right. comes from different writers and, and stuff like that, not just Lovecraft. But since Richard has been involved with that since the beginning, it's like, I feel like I know I've learned from Richard by osmosis through all of that too. So the, a lot of the research though, that we want to do is uh, probably artistically because we wanted the game to stand out uh, not just as a fantasy flight clone or something like that. You know, we want to put our own stamp on the game. And that, again, has been a little problematic because people are like so used to seeing the fantasy flight representative, representatives of things. Right. And But we went with uh, more a couple more traditional looks for things, um, a couple more unique looks for things, uh, things that were pulled out. Um, the interesting thing about stylistically, other than maybe Cthulhu, most of the... Elder Gods, Ancient Ones, uh, the Servants, things like that, are not 100% fleshed out. You know, you yeah. you have a lot of vague uh, descriptions from people about certain things. And so there's a lot about interpretation, and so we pull out particular passages of, of ways we would like to take some of the Elder God illustrations or the, the, the minis we were going to do. So that's been fun, too, and going back and look at some of these stories that I've experienced throughout the years or, or come into contact with throughout the years and finding very subtle references that you can use both in a game design way but also an artistic way. Yeah, definitely. And as I was doing some research before this this episode, you know, one of the things I learned that I didn't know is that, yeah, most of the Elder Gods aren't very well described in the stories or in the books. They're, they're just kind of very uh, vague, kind of broad terms, and so you can kind of take from that what you want. Whereas, you know, now we think of the fantasy flight version of the different games and you think, oh, okay, that's what that one looks like. That's what that one looks like. But really that was just one artist's idea. And so they're still very much open for interpretation. Another thing I learned was that Cthulhu is not even really that bad of a dude. Like there are so many gods that are way <laughs> worse than him, but we've kind of turned Cthulhu into the mascot, into the, the kind of overlord of this whole mythos when actually he's just, you know, one of the, the, the guys lower on the totem pole than some of the others. Yeah, I mean, it's like you know, when you when you go back and look into into the pantheon of the gods and kind of the hierarchy and things, you know, Cthulhu is, uh, you know, he's still bad. He wants to eat people and rule the world. <laughs> right. But you know, it's you don't want him to you don't want him to wake up from his his uh, eternal sleep in Rilia. But it's um, you're right. It's it's the he has become obviously the mascot because it's just been in the public consciousness. And because Call of Cthulhu role playing game became so big and. Right. And then Arkham Horror with just just the the iconic representation of Cthulhu became so ingrained. So that's why it's like it's funny because when we demo, it's like, you know, I, I usually put out we do three person demos usually. And so I'll put out Cthulhu and I'll put out Sothagwa and then I'll put out Yogg-Sothoth. And I say I give them the the choices and the first person that speaks up is always, oh, Cthulhu. Yeah, I want to play Cthulhu. And right. mechanically, Cthulhu is interesting, too, because he plays. Pretty much what you whether you would feel with him. He's he's sort of a bully. He he sends these cultists into a location. Every individual elder, by the way, has a dark gift you can call upon. So the cult can call upon the dark gift of that particular elder god. And and Cthulhu is very much the, the the cultist moves into a location and basically kicks butt. Right. Yeah. You know, he'll kill off investigators or a couple of cultists from the other cults, things like that. The, everybody else is very thematic. Like Yog Sothoth is all about magic. The key in the gate, and so uh, Yogg's dark gift. The the cult is able to call upon and cast spells for free if they're able to enact the dark gift. So spell casting is very much for that. So all of them, and Sathagwa, I love because it was a brainstorm that I kind of had. We worked on the mechanics for it, but Sathagwa, the the cult actually kidnaps cults from other people's lodges, cultists from other people's lodges, brings it back to theirs, their lodge, ties them up, and then later 
eats feeds those cultists to Sathagwa <laughs> to raise the summoning track. So all the individual elder gods in the box and in the expansion have very thematic uh, mechanics and ties in. So you can have a different strategy as you play the game, which has been super fun. Yeah. Well, let's talk about why Cthulhu, like of all the things that have come out, all the stories written, the books written, the different mythos that have been come up with, why, why have people really just clung to or, or just been attracted so much to the Cthulhu theme? As a whole, yeah. It's interesting that yeah, if we're talking about the Lovecraftian mythos and why people really just res- – why it resonates with people, right. I'll be honest with you. I don't know because <laughs> – I mean I love it obviously and a lot of other people love it as well. But we – I think the Call of Cthulhu RPG pretty much – was something that was new that kind of came out at that time. It was a very harsh, uh, sometimes unforgiving system that actually captured the feel of a Lovecraft story. And and those stories are very much about the fragility of, of our minds and the things that we don't understand. And, you know, again, a very nihilistic approach. And, and I think being able to adventure in that world of basically saying, I want to survive this madness or uh, find, discover the unknown, it resonates with a lot of people. It's a big archetype. And to have that rich of a mythos that's all tied together and has so many different, uh, pardon the pun, tendrils, you know, running through all the different, uh, you know, storylines, I think resonates with people too. And the fact that it is tightly woven, it's also been expanded in, you know, works by Robert Howard and, and uh, obviously August Ehrlich and, and people like that throughout the years. It's, it's just a rich, canvas that people can paint on and, and also uh are, like you said going down a rabbit hole you can just go down a rabbit hole of cthulhu stuff and you'll be you know fascinated for weeks on end so i think that's probably what has drawn people to it i mean the darkness of it i think sometimes does too but also the fact that it's 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 mankind fighting back against powerful forces that they have no way to comprehend or battle but yet they still think they can do it hmm. um so and that's kind of my take on it yeah, and that's, that kind of goes into what I was maybe even going to project a little bit is this deeper level of things. So it's more than just, okay, that's a fun story, that's cool. It's this deeper chaos kind of thing where maybe people feel like, okay, my life is chaos. I can't battle the stuff going on in my life so much, but I can battle this this elder god on this board and I can kind of bring this chaos into order through through a game like Arkham Horror or Eldritch Horror or you know any of those games. Or it's kind of like this good versus evil, obviously very much a good versus evil story, which people relate mm-hmm. to and it resonates so much. Uh, but then, like you're saying, there's this idea of the unknown and exploring the unknown. I feel like as man, just mankind, we really you know, are drawn towards that, whether it's through space or through fantasy stories, whatever, where we just want to go explore these worlds. And I feel like the, the mythos of Lovecraft just has an incredible world that's unlike you know, any other world that we can go and explore and, and people really just are drawn towards that. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing too, is like we, we have this curiosity for these dark spaces and, and our, and again, you're right. You're against the chaos of the regular world. It's like, that's, I mean, that's part of the escapism of playing games in, in the first place, but also reading, yeah. you know, it's imagining those things and it is an escape from the drudgery of regular life. And the thing about, you know, the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraftian things in general is interesting is that you're fighting back against these oppressive forces that you can't control or understand. And it sometimes it, that's, that reflects life, but it is an escapism. And yeah. I think it's funny too, because it reflects like we always want to 
I mean, this again is an, a, a legendary archetype, but we always want to know things we're not supposed to know. So one of the big, you know, overarching memes in the Cthulhu mythos and is uh, things man was not meant to know. Yeah. And that is basically we're delving into these dark corners that we're all fascinated by, but we're also horrified by at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like those stories are all over. Whether you go to Genesis in the Bible with Adam and Eve, you know, yeah. eating the eating the forbidden fruit and, and knowing these things they weren't meant to know and all the aftermath that came from that. I mean, there's stories all over the place. Of, absolutely. Of, and so there's something about mankind. We're just really drawn towards things that we aren't meant to know. Now with Cthulhu, it's interesting because when you know those things, it, it makes you go insane. <laughs> you know, you can't even, like to know it is to destroy yourself. And I think that was kind of part of the Call of Cthulhu RPG thing. Like, you didn't actually ever win a game, right? Like, eventually you were going to go insane. It was just like, how long could you last? Right, pretty much. I mean, you a long campaign of Call of Cthulhu is pretty much going to send you to the sanitarium at some point. Right. It's just, uh, you're just trying to hold out as, as long as you possibly can. And it depends It depends on the, the game master as well. Some are more sadistic than others, <laughs> but the system itself sets you up to be like, you know, because a, a lot of systems don't have both health points and sanity points, you know, right. so you got to, you know, I mean, you're likely to be eaten by something that's driven insane, but at the same time, it's, it's just fun because yeah. you're just like, you're like, I'm not going to get too attached to this character because I, I mean, I can if I want to and, and actually take them through the drudgeries and they can have, you know, uh, they can be maimed, they can be driven insane and have these weird characteristics to them. And, and that's reflected some in the Arkham Heart and Eldritch Heart and some of the other uh products that have come out that, about the Cthulhu mythos, which I think is fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Call of, the Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, the RPG, was a little closer to the mythos because you, you weren't really going to win. You were eventually going to go insane. I was talking to Richard Longius in our, our previous episode, and he said, you know, if you want to really make a Cthulhu game, roll a die, okay, you're dead. Like, that would really be <laughs> yeah, like how it would work out. You're not really going to be able to shoot him with a shotgun or hit him with a, a you know, a rock or a sword or something like that and do anything to him. This is, you know, you have to gamify it to a certain degree. Oh, absolutely. The idea in Arkham Horror that you can, that Cthulhu can awaken and that you can fight them off with the weapons you have is ludicrous. But at the same time, it's, you know, you get to have that fun and that aspect. And it is rare that you will beat them that way. You want to try to, again, it's all about trying to prevent these things from being awakened because as soon as they are, it's all over. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your game a little bit more because you guys, you basically took on the idea, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. And so let's just <laughs> raise these guys up. Let's let's call them forth and destroy the world. And I don't know of another game that's really done that. Definitely not in a thematic way. Do you know of any other games that you were the cultist? Well, one was released or kickstarted shortly before Fate of the Elder Gods called Madness at Midnight that Richard had a small hand in development on uh, working with, with Sean Brown for Mr. B Games that had that as a as a, a theme, but it works very differently from Fate of the Elder Gods. And uh, uh, the the work on Fate was begun a long time before the, that game was considered being done. So that's there's been a couple little things here and there that's tinkered with you playing as the bad guy which um, I think is a fun concept. And we, of course, when we first started, you know, imagining this game, it was always as, oh, what, what would what would happen if it was the cultist trying to awaken things? And it was it was a fun uh, it was a fun thing that dived in. And I think we'll see probably some more of those come along uh, throughout the time. It, I won't say it is not a completely original concept, but it is yeah. fun in the sense that we get to play in that space and, and actually 
what, like, like I said, uh, call upon the dark gifts or the um, you know, the abilities of your, your ancient ones. So each cult will play a little bit differently and very thematically. And, and of course, you get to control. This is the fun. I mean, the fun part is you get to control the monsters, too, in the expansion. Yeah. So you can summon forth, you know, Migo and stuff like that and send them around the board to do lots of little weird things. And so it's like people love to see the monsters show up. But it's like, well, what happens if you get to at least try to control the monsters. Let's say, well, let's say try to control the monsters because <laughs> you get cursed when you summon them and then sometimes they don't work exactly the way that you expect, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's still a lot to be explored as far as playing that other side, playing the bad guy. Now, a lot of games they have, you know, where one side's good, one side's bad. You know, you have the, the players versus the overlord or whatever it is, but there's just not not that many games where everybody is a bad guy and you're trying to do bad guy stuff and, and through bad guy means, and we'll see who's the baddest of the bad, and that person wins. And so I think there's a lot to still be explored in that realm of games. Well, I think so, too. I mean, that's the thing, too, is like there's always new ways to push things yeah. and – in, in the end, as long as long as it's a fun experience, and again, it, I, what I'm fascinated by is the mentality that people get into when they play this game. It's like they they get mischievous, you know. They're like, "Oh, I'm going to do this to you," or, or especially with the curses. The way the curses work in the game is that if you become cursed, the person to your right draws that curse card, and they read this uh, trigger at the top of the card. And if any time during the game you trigger that, they will stop the game immediately and read the card out, and something really bad is going to happen to you. And people just look at that and they just get that glee in their eye and they go like, oh, you sure you want to do that? You know, we always tell us like, you know, uh, taunting is encouraged. Like, you know, tell them like hold up the curse card and say, are you sure you want to do that? You know, you might trigger your curse. So it's it's a lot of fun. And I think what it does is it gives people permission to do those things, to do things that they normally wouldn't do in real life. I'm sure in real life, all those people are pretty decent human beings that love their neighbors and have, <laughs> you know, loving relationships with their family and all that. But you get in a game like this and you can kind of be a jerk and you can be mischievous and you can kind of do things to other people. And that's just part of the game. That's how you play. It's one of the things I love about D&D. You know, you can be a wonderful human being in the real world, but in D&D, you can play as a chaotic, evil character. And you can say, <laughs> okay, I would never do this, but my character sure would. I stab you right in the back. You know, and so you I can... Get, yeah, I'm getting in trouble with that in Gloomhaven because <laughs> I play... I always play the thief and rogue types. I always have. And I just get a little mischievous. And I'm, I'm always, I always have my party's back. But at the same time... But when you play the rogue in Gloomhaven, you're able to like go around and loot gold like crazy. Yeah. And so when we first started playing it, uh, my buddy Dan, uh, Dan Patrice, who does the Geek All Stars, uh, he, you know, he was like, "What are you doing?" Because I'll be, I will beeline like I will go like way out of my way to grab more gold. So they're always like, I had like a hundred some gold, and they had gathered like maybe twenty or thirty <laughs> pieces during our campaign so far. So, but it's like I'm like that's my character, right? My character would be like, ooh, shiny, and go grab it, and then go beat the bad guy, you know? And what I love is, is well, this this tells a good story. Like, okay, this is not what I would do. I wouldn't react this way, but my character would, and it's going to tell a really cool, dramatic story in doing that in that kind of way. And I think that's that's one of the best parts of games is that experience. Right. And one thing we try to do also in, in Fate of the Elder Gods is – not necessarily make it so that you're constantly beating on someone else's character. You're, yeah. you're really not. I mean, you know, Cthulhu's a little bit of a bully, but it, it, in the end, it's not like, it doesn't feel like you're actually punishing someone else. Now, there are a couple of spells and some things you can do, but it's not a lot of, like, huge take that kind of play. But the curses themselves is like, what's fun is the other person is gleefully wanting you to trigger that curse, 
and something bad is going to happen to you, but it's not that player who's doing that to you. You did this to yourself. The game mechanics are doing this to you. And so there aren't a lot of hurt feelings when you play the game. It doesn't have that harsh, well, you did this to me. It's like, no, 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 no. You played the game. Something happened to you. And, <laughs> and, it, and in the end, it was fun because people go, well, it was completely horrific, but at the same time, it's a memorable moment. So. Yeah, absolutely. And if it, it tells a cool story that people talk about after the game. And that's really, I think, what you're absolutely. going for. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. Let's talk about some of the challenges you guys face in, in this game. So, <clears throat> you know, you are creating it from the other side, which is really cool, but that still comes with some challenges that you have to face. You're creating a Cthulhu game, one of many, many that are that are out there right now. So trying to, you know, be different, differentiate yourself from the other games. But what were, what were the challenges you guys really ran into? Well, I mean, obviously the challenge of this type of game is uh, it's, it's big and there's a lot of uh, getting the core mechanics down was, was probably, I wouldn't say the easiest part, but getting, making sure that how movement works around the fake clock, um, how spells can build up this, uh, things like that. Those are core mechanics that we were able to focus on in the beginning. But the, the real challenge of course has been in playing the game, but also coming up with a variety of spell types and interactions and how all the different abilities work together because there are thousands of permutations uh, that can happen in a game like this. And, you know, we've play tested a ton and we've had tons of play testers go after it and also done, uh, you know, a, a whole lot of demos and seeing how things work. And we've been constantly tweaking it. We've gotten to the point where we feel that it's smooth and, but it's also, I mean, this is the same thing that, like, for instance, Eric Lang might run into when he designs things like Blood Rage, uh, those types of games that have a lot of card interaction yeah. and a lot of power interaction and sometimes can combos. Uh, you know, it's it takes a long time to make sure that, that something you come up with is not overpowered. You know, we've we've had some spells in the game at some point that we've actually pulled back a little because we feel like they were too much or... We've had to, we love the ability of this certain artifact. There's artifacts in the game that give you abilities too. There's so many things in the game that can give you different abilities and advantages that that's the real challenge is looking at it and coming up with the concept and then you play with it and you go like, whoa, that is crazy. <laughs> and then you try to, you don't necessarily get rid of the ability, but you try to balance it a little bit with something else. You know, like this, the silver key was one that we worked on for a while. And the silver key would... You could you could basically exhaust it. In other words, you exhaust an artifact, use it once, and you could exhaust it on your turn to move a cultist anywhere on the board that you would like. Um, and that was really overpowered because of the other worlds, you stack your cultists up and then you roll dice, and for every success you get, they're sacrificed to the abyss, and you can move up on your summon track. And so we try to watch for strategies that are too overpowered where you could just keep using something and abusing it every turn. So now the silver key is balanced where you could move a cultist on the board uh, to a, from one location to another location as long as that location you only have one or fewer cultists at that location. Yeah. So it's a balancing aspect. It's still super useful. And I used it, matter of fact, I was playing a demo at PAX and I stepped in for this one guy and I got the silver key and I, and I was playing Sathagwa and, I, and I, I know how to play the game pretty well, obviously, and I've played <laughs> it a lot. But, you know, I was using the silver key to keep feeding to the ceremony, then going to use my dark gift and eating people. And, you know, it's like it's it it all keys into each other to make a strategy, but it wasn't overpowered. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about that. But we also want people to feel like that they the game is open enough for them to have fun with it. And so we want them to feel like they have power, but it's not going to be anything game breakingly bad when they do it. Yeah. So that is a huge aspect to it. 
you know, that honestly kind of leads into what maybe needs to be a show unto itself, this idea of balance, because a game will never be perfectly balanced. And it probably shouldn't be, because if it's perfectly balanced, it's probably boring. Like, you need things <laughs> that are out of balance here or there. Or really, it's just the perception. about You need, you need your players to perceive, perceive that, they, that it's balanced. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one, it's going to take you 10 years to, to play test every edge case and all that to make everything perfectly balanced, quote-unquote. But right. it's, it's going to suck all the fun and the life out of it. You want things that, that the player goes, oh, if I get this, I'm going to win. Now, whether they will or won't isn't really the question. It's do they perceive that, that that's going to be the case and everybody tries to stop them and, all, and it creates really cool uh, interactions in play. Yeah, and that, that's something we encourage too is table talk. Um, you know, this is a social game and sometimes you will have to, there might be a leader and you may have to say like, well, let's put aside our differences and try to stop this leader from doing this certain thing. There's certain strategies that emerge like that at the table. It's not a, it has Euro mechanisms, but it also has a very Amerocentric thematic theme. So it encourages tabletop it encourages player interaction. And there we try to balance as best as we can, but you know, you're right. And these large thematic games occasionally, you'll have a strategy emerge or a card emerge, something like that, that somebody, you know, some quote unquote abuses and they think that, Oh, well, this is too powerful. Well, well, it probably is. And it just needs to be countered with a different type of strategy. Right. Um, but you're right. It's like, it's a perception of balance. And, and the only truly balanced games are abstracts where yeah. each side is exactly the same, has exactly the same abilities. And you're basically sure mind against the other person's mind, you know, right. A thematic game like Fate of the Elder Gods is going to have some, it's going to have a couple swingy moments, but overall it's up to the players to um, to to help rectify what's happening on the board. And we feel like, I personally feel like we've made a very balanced uh, game for, for such a thematic experience. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing, even with the abstract games, a lot of that, a lot of times that turns into whoever goes first has a better chance of winning. So even that's not even balanced. At, Possibly, yes. At the end yeah. of it. So, like, what ideas did you guys have that just didn't fit? They didn't fit the theme or that just didn't quite work out? You mentioned a couple things just then uh, that you had to kind of pull back on or pull out of. Uh, but what are some other things that just didn't fit with what you guys were trying to do? Well, I mean, it was mostly about the, the, the thematics of, of certain things. You know, it, it was kind of like looking at a certain spell or – uh, the casting costs of a spell or uh, you know, a dark gift. A lot of the dark gifts uh, never changed, but some of the dark gifts we kept playing through several permutations to find the right one. That was probably maybe one of our biggest ones. It's like Yogg's Othos ability basically has not changed at all. Mm-hmm. Yogg's ability was one of the easiest ones to come up with. We knew that we wanted to have it about spell casting, so casting spells for free, super awesome. Yes, it's going to help you during the game, but it's not game-breakingly bad, but it's very straightforward, so somebody can play Yogg-Sothoth and really focus on that and have an, an advantage. Yogg and Sothagwa, uh, but Cthulhu has gone through several iterations because we wanted to make sure it was thematically appropriate, and uh, we finally come up with something that feels like that bulliness that you might have from Cthulhu, but and it's helpful, but it's not overarchingly uh, bad. So things that don't work out for us are things that seem too big. Yeah, too big for for what the game should be, or or not not necessarily super thematic about things. You know, we in the the uh, expansion we have uh, uh, Dagon as one of the the playable elder gods and things. And coming up with that thematically, we're trying to figure: well, do we want Dagon to control deep ones? And they could, but Gatanathwa can control Migo, and so we didn't want to make it too similar to that. And so we gave uh, Dagon a power of like the end's mouth look, so he can 
turn uh, investigators into cultists and things, which is cool. You know, it's like it's evolving these people into servants of Dagon instead of uh, the other way around. And so, yeah, lots of little things like that. We want to make sure that things, things stay thematic, but also different enough that they warranted inclusion in the game. That's a big part. Yeah, and I think sometimes games get a little too married to the theme where they make everything just super realistic or super like it's quote-unquote supposed to be. Uh, and they, they end up losing a lot of gameplay in that because they're trying to make the game oh exactly like it should be. And you end right. up having all these extra rules or extra edge cases and all these things, that, and it really just kind of destroys a lot of the streamlineness of the game. And so that's really cool that you guys kind of went in and said, okay, this doesn't work, this doesn't fit. This would really be thematic, but we still need to change it because it's too similar to this over here. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a big it's a big process, huge process, for balancing things like that. I um, and it's been fun to be able to play test the different iterations and see yeah. how they all work. I mean, the monsters, the the Beast from Beyond expansion. We the reason why it's an expansion. People will even ask this at PAX. They said, "Oh, well, the, here's the base game." I, I mentioned the expansion. I said, "Well, the game's not out yet. Why do you have an expansion?" And we're like, "Well, because." Number one, we want to keep the, the the cost of the base game down enough that people can just get into it yeah. without having to spend a lot of money. But also because we don't want people to open up the base game and just go, oh, look at all these monsters, let's throw them in. Mm -hmm. That is not the right idea. <laughs> right. It's like it, the monsters and the, the Beast from Beyond expansion are for should be for experienced players that have already played through the base game at least a couple times and gotten the ebb and flow of the game. Then they know it well enough that they could introduce the, the sometimes interesting chaos or not chaos but complexity that the monsters can can you know lend themselves to the game and you want to walk before you you start trying to run before you run exactly yeah right so let's talk about the benefits of of creating a Th cthulhu game so you know obviously people know who cthulhu is they know a little bit at least of that mythos but why if i'm if i'm sitting there and i can i can do one of two things i can create my own monsters my own elder gods my own whatever scenario versus creating something in the Cthulhu mythos, what are the big benefits of doing that in the Cthulhu theme? Well, obviously, yeah, just the familiarity, I think, is one of the benefits of it. Um, the the cool factor, uh, the, the fact that people people who are drawn to this game, obviously, a lot of them are familiar with the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. What we wanted to bring to this, too, is, is if introducing people to it that aren't as familiar, but they can still get it. Like... Mm -hmm. The core game itself is like, you know, okay, you get the concept that you're serving this thing, and this thing has an ability, and you have these cards in your hand that do things. You know, it's like you don't need to know, you know, this spell was influenced by, you know, this certain story at this certain time, or, you know, this creature comes from this story. I mean, you don't need to know the mythos to really get into it, because you, you just know that, okay, I'm the bad guy, and I want to do something really cool. Right. And there are abilities that I can I can do. I can go around and influence and, and get certain powers, and so that's easy to get into. But the people who, obviously, beyond that, are going to appreciate the theme and the art, that's a huge benefit because they will bring an immersion to the game that you can't normally do. I guess in a theme that is, you can still have fun with a theme that's unique, obviously. Yeah. But having being able to play around in that 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 universe, that mythos that is already established is a huge benefit, not only for us as designers, but also for players. And I think it also, as a designer, it it gives you restrictions which can help in the creative process. When you have just a yes. blank slate and you can come up with anything, 
a lot of times it's easier just to come up with nothing because it's just too broad. It's too much. But when you have right. these, these uh, creatures or animals or gods, whatever mythos you're already in, you have very specific uh, things that you're already working with and you can just kind of change and tweak and move them around a bit. And it gives you a lot more structure without having to create all that structure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You have a, you have a, a universe that has a set, some set rules. Right. You know, if you have, if you come up with your own sort of universe, I mean, even that you can still say, well, I want to, I want to design a thematic game. You still have the constraints of reality unless you're doing something completely out of left field. Yeah. So with thematics, you have to think about what are the parameters of the world that you're living in, you're working in. And of course, the Cthulhu mythos, even though as fantastical as it is, still has some of those parameters, which you're right, can definitely help in the creative process. You know, when we have something that when we want to fit thematically, we start pushing it too far another way. Then we're like, well, this doesn't really this doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And for some, sometimes people get nervous with that throwing around that that word with game design. Well, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. It's like, well, where are the numbers? Like some people will say, where are the numbers? What, haven't you crunched the numbers on this thing? I'm like, no, 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 no. No, you don't understand. When you're trying to design with the essence of thematics, you've got to make sure, obviously, that it feels right in the game as far as the, the numbers game, as far as is it balanced with some other power. Yeah. But you also have to play by feel. And that's something I also bring sometimes to uh, development sessions or when I do play tests. You know, the, for instance, in a couple of days, I'm going to Unpub, the Unpublished Games Convention. And a lot of the feedback that I give people is about uh, player mentality. Mm -hmm. um, they might have a game that's out there that has some really cool mechanics. But in the end, you know, I will like I play tested a, a game uh, back at, uh, at PressCon and it was really fun. But the mechanics of a certain, a, a certain, some of the certain mechanics in the game felt a bit too restrictive to me. And I said, well, the player mentality is is going to be, I want to be set free a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so I could do possibly more combos. I said, not only if you do this, it'll, it'll shorten the game time, but increase the fun factor, but make people feel like that they're smart. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they... Uh, Paul and Keith took that and they were like, yeah, that's, that's what, you know, you're right. We're hundred percent right. And so they're, they making those tweaks and we'll do that in Iris too. It's like, this feels right. This feels like somebody could do something cool. And you know, it, you've got to play by that. You've got to pay attention to how people feel when they play a game as much as how many they think. No, absolutely. I think the, the player psychology and, and like you're saying, people want to feel smart. They want to feel like they're doing something cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like they're doing something right. So to speak, as far as playing combos and all that. And the more you can add that to a game, the better people are going to feel about your game, whether it's super balanced or not, it's not really a big deal because they're thinking, I like this game because it makes me feel good. Right. Absolutely. Well, cool. Let's talk about unexplored territory. As we kind of wrap up the show, what are some things that, that people just haven't explored yet in the Cthulhu mythos? Now, you guys are doing the other side. You're playing the cultists. You're playing the bad guys. So that's a really cool uh, avenue, to, avenue to explore. But what are maybe some other things that people could look into for games down the road that could still be Cthulhu-themed but be very different from the games that are already on the market? Well, I'm just kind of waiting for... Well, one of the things that was cool that came out recently that I think is a good way to explore into it, it was Mythos Tales, and that was uh, from yeah. um, 8th Summit. And um, Jason was... I've known Jason for quite a while, and he's a good friend of, of Richard's. And, and so when they produced that game, taking the Sherlock Holmes consulting detective uh, engine and, and translating it over into you know, Cthulhu Mythos-based deduction tales... Well, that was that was cool. That was something I was expecting. Is like you know that the the really get into the investigator side and saying like, well, I need to investigate these weird things that are happening. Yeah. So I think that's a big space that still needs to be explored. It's more that personal 
touch that gets a little bit more wreck into the role-playing aspect mm-hmm. that has story based to it. You know, Arkham tells a story. Uh, Eldritch Hard tells a story, not quite as robustly as Arkham does, but they tell stories. But also, I'm waiting for the first Cthulhu Legacy game. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a really cool idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, from the the ex, the the influence or the exerting control over certain parts or things might you know like get overrun with something or you know that a lot of things that happen in pandemic legacy or something like that having a a cthulhu based legacy and i'm sure somebody out there is working on it because yeah. i mean let's be honest it's it's cthulhu and there's going to be more you get a little backlash when people say yeah another cthulhu game and then you're like yeah don't you want to play it and then <laughs> they begrudgingly say yes yeah you know so i'm just like well there's a reason why you, know, you return to that because it's just so incredible. But yeah, probably somebody will probably develop a a Lovecraftian legacy game. But I think anybody out there who has not played Mythos Tales should probably go check it out because it's a ton of fun. Yeah, I saw that one uh, being reviewed a while back, and it's just a really interesting idea. But the legacy game, man, that could be really cool because like everything you do carries forward. So yeah, your character went insane. But everything he accomplished up to that point is still there in the world. All the clues that were found, whatever it is that you're doing, it's still yeah. there when you open the game again. Unlike Arkham Horror Eldritch Horror, where, all right, we put everything back in the box. In the next game, we set the world back up. And the world is brand new, clean slate, everything's good. Well, having it where a gate just decimated a city, and that city for the rest of your game is gone, would be a really cool, uh, interesting way to play. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be a blast. Well, cool, man. Chris, really appreciate you coming on the show. Really had a, just a lot of fun talking to you about Cthulhu and just the different design ideas and, and nuggets of wisdom that you've shared. Uh, here in a minute, we're going to talk about, uh, and over in the bonus round, things to keep in mind when designing small games. So your your company, Dice Hate Me Games, has a lot of really cool $10 and $20 games, just smaller games that are a lot of fun. And I just want to talk to you for a, a little bit about the considerations that go into creating games of that size and that price point. So we're going to do that at the bonus round. If you want to check that out, you can go to boardgamedesignlab.com. But anyway, Chris, really, again, appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Thanks. I appreciate it. hope everybody has enjoyed listening to two Southern boys go <laughs> head yeah. to head here. They can, hope they can tell us apart. No doubt. That's kind of funny. Jamie Stegmaier recommended that we that we sit down and, and talk yeah. and have an interview because we sound so much alike. And so, yeah, I'm hoping <laughs> that people don't think I'm just sitting here actually talking to myself. You're just talking to a hand puppet the whole time, yep. I've actually thought about doing that and just seeing if I could get away with it, just interviewing myself <laughs> about different things. Maybe not in third person or, you know, like strange. Yeah, probably not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. not like a, a schizophrenic way, but just kind of, anyway, we'll see how that goes. But anyway, Chris, <laughs> appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. I'll see you. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?